Welcome to the EMS Handout, your source for all things EMS. And now, let's welcome to the show your hosts, Bradley Dean, Eric McCullough, and David Blevins. Hello, and welcome back to the EMS Handoff Podcast. I'm David, and along with my co-host, Bradley Dean, we are your source for all things EMS. And if you've been watching our feed lately, uh, we've been a little bit behind. So, Bradley, we are back to rocking and rolling with the EMS Handoff Podcast. Uh, We've got some stuff coming up uh, pretty soon with some conferences uh, and stuff like that. So we definitely need to get back on the air. Bradley Dean, how has North Carolina been treating you? Oh, uh, pretty good. Uh, been on the road a little bit. Been working some today, but the uh, the big thing is is uh, the conference coming up. This is their fiftieth conference, and that's why we're going to be covering it here in North Carolina. Awesome, awesome. So we will be you'll be seeing us back not only on our podcast. Uh, platform with the Journal of Emergency Medical Services. But for those that haven't seen it, we also have our previous episodes coming online on the EMS handoff by itself. So we're going to go ahead and jump in today. But before we get started, we'd like to thank our podcast partner, the Journal of Emergency Medical Services. While the EMS handoff serves as your source for all things EMS, Jim's has been the source for the journal-based publication for many years. So make sure to go by and see them on their website uh give them a review as well so bradley dean we're going to go ahead and just get right started like we always have we've got a guest tonight that's got a very interesting topic so uh if you would briefly introduce it and then we'll we'll turn it over to our guest to finish that up all right so we're joined by Oh, I just lost service, but I. All right. We're joined by Jonathan, who's been involved in uh, EMS since 2009, has been a Pennsylvania and National Register Paramedic since 2015. Uh, Jonathan earned a Bachelor of Science in Emergency Medicine from the University of Pittsburgh in 2016 and is currently enrolled in the Masters of Science and Emergency Services graduate program at Crichton University. Uh, he's a former paramedic rescue technician at Baldwin Paramedic Rescue, as well as EMS specialist with uh, Axla Health and a board-certified medical legal death investigator. And currently, uh, he's serving as the program director of the Mutual Aid Axla Health Paramedic Training Program uh, since 2021. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I, I very much appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Now, I really, you know, with that with that introduction, Jonathan, I really just want to sit back now and uh, like just listen to your presentation and go at it. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I I, I appreciate it. I, I thank you guys. Uh, thank you guys a ton um, for for having me uh, for having me on. You know, so my my EMS journey is a little bit um, t- is a little bit unique, and it took some turns that I didn't expect it to take uh, throughout the course of my career. So um, I was a so if we rewind. Um, back to 2009, uh, I went to EMT class and I did like the summer fast track thing, you know, where you go every day and uh, instead of the two nights a week, a week thing, cause I was in high school. And, um, so it's the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of high school. So I become an EMT. I'm 16. That's great. Problem. Can't work anywhere, um, until you're 18. Right. So I'm from just outside of Pittsburgh or the suburbs of Pittsburgh. So, uh, there really isn't a ton of volunteer opportunities, um, around. So the town I lived in, um, had an ambulance service and I went down there and I knocked on the door, not knowing a soul. Um, and I said, Hey, uh, I'm a 16 year old kid. I'm an EMT. And I basically just want to work for you for free. And they looked at me like I was a crazy person. 
And they said, sure, sounds great. Um, so um, I basically spent my summer just hanging out at the ambulance station and riding, you know, kind of doing like the, I was like the ride along that never went. I'm like the ride along that never went away. Um, um, I rode around and I went to calls and it was great. And then I became a volunteer fireman um, with absolutely zero interest at all in fighting fire. Um, I just wanted to go to ambulance calls because that was sort of my ticket in the door. Right. Because I wasn't I wasn't old enough to work anywhere. Um, so I had like my normal, like high school kid summer jobs and became an EMT and, uh, and, uh, became an EMT where I'm currently employed now and never left. Uh, if you'd have told me that when I was in high school, I'd have never believed you. And, uh, and here I am, I've always sort of been a, um, a science math sort of driven, uh, driven person in high school and in college. So, um, the medical field always really interested me. And I sort of, um, I've always remained, then I became a paramedic and I remained in EMS. I dabbled into a couple things. I was, I'm affiliate. I was affiliated with the coroner's office in the County where I live, uh, became a board certified medical, uh, medical legal death investigator. So I, I played around with that for a little bit, but never worked or uh, never left EMS. Uh, still, still like what I do. I've kicked around going to medical school and PA school. And just every time I try to do it, it's just like, you know, I end up back on the ambulance and, and I enjoy it. Um, there's not a day of my life that I go to work and think to myself, wow, I wish I did something else. So, so, uh, and then uh, I got into teaching and, um, became the program director of a paramedic program and have a great team of people uh, behind me that helped me with that. And it's it's been great. I, I love what I do. I love the journey. And I was fortunate enough to meet Bradley actually at a local EMS conference, which is how I got hook, uh, hook, uh, hooked up with you guys. He uh, walked up to me right after my talk. It was, I finished my talk and the next talk started, you know, like there's like a 10 minute break. So I'm tearing my stuff down and trying to get out of the room um, and talking to Bradley at the same time. And he said, hey, I have this podcast that runs through gems and it's the EMS handoff. And I said, oh, I know what that is. And that's sort of one thing led to another. And here we are. So so I appreciate you having me. And um, yeah, the, the reason that we're here um, or the reason that I think attracted and Brad, please, please tell me if I'm wrong, um, was that my topic at, at the EMS conference where we met is really not sexy. Right. That's how I introduced it. Yeah, you know, there's all these things. There's all these things going on around me at this conference that are that are all great, right? They're talking about blood and they're talking about ECMO and and RSI and all these cool things and ultrasound. And then I go up into a room and I said, "Hey, let's talk about lift assist." And everybody just sort of looked at me, like, "Really? Like we're gonna talk about lift assist? There's all these cool things we're gonna talk about lift assist." I'm like, "Yeah, we got to talk about lift assist, right? Because these people are <laughs> these people are really sick, and that's kind of how it started." So, so Bradley, um. You know, from that talk at the at the I'm going to I think I started back with a question to you from that talk at the EMS conference that we were at. What about that lift assist topic do you think made it sort of most intriguing to you? Uh, and then I will sort of spin off of that and take this to where you where you needed to go so I can take my 90 minute presentation and kind of condense it to what you guys think your listeners would like the most. So one of the biggest things uh, with that is. You know, looking across all the calls that we run uh, as, you know, EMTs or uh, advanced EMTs, paramedics, is, you know, we run a lot of refusals and we run a lot of uh, falls or, you know, what some people just think as a lift assist. And unfortunately, you know, we go out and we pick up, you know, Miss Jones uh, in the middle of the night, put her back in bed. And then next morning, the family can't wake her up. Because, you know, maybe she bumped her head, she was on blood thinners, and we, you know, people miss that on their assessment. Yeah, and, and, and I think that that, I think that that is, is so important. So, so first of all, I, I have to tell you off, off the total topic, I have a two-year-old that at this moment in life is very anti-bedtime. So if you hear some screaming going on um, in the background, that's what that is, because he just hates it. Um, anyway, but yes, I, I agree. So so and we were talking, I was talking to, to Dave before we started, you know, if you think about like EMT class or paramedic class, right, we spend this much time talking about how we do CPR and stop bleeding and and splinting and all these other things, which are really important. But we spend negligible time talking about how we mitigate these people that fall that are really sick. You know, the person, just like in your example, what do we do for the person who, when we put them to bed and they were fine and they woke up and now they're not right. You know, sample OPQRST, like that's all great, 
But at the end of the day, what do you do about it? Or the person who falls down three times in the same 12-hour shift and you go back and pick them up. Okay, well, yeah, it's really easy to fall into that trap of, you know, they're a frequent flyer. They abuse the system, this, that, you know, whatever, whatever your flavor is, however you want to call it. You know, the people where we've decided before we even get there that they're not sick or they're abusing the system or they're a pain in the butt. And the reality is, if the system had met their needs, they wouldn't have called, right? Like if they could have gotten up, they would have gotten up, right? Like if you fell out of your chair right now while we're recording this, you would just get up. If you couldn't, that's weird. Right. And, and I will be honest, what sparked my interest, I, I was never interested in this because I was that person. And I think just like we all were at some point, I think all of us, if you've done this for any length of time, has gone to a call and said, you know, or, or even, you know, out loud or in your head, this is annoying, right? That you're, you're myself included, right? And I'm the one sitting here talking about this, right? I've been annoyed with that patient and I never thought about it ever. Until last summer, I was cutting my grass one day and was listening. That's when I do like a lot of my podcast listening and stuff. I'm cutting my grass or in my car and I was listening to um, Ginger Locke's pod, uh, Medic Mindset podcast. And she had Dr. Maya Dorsett on talking about lift assist. And Dr. Dorsett said, you know, that's not normal. Right. That that was I think that's actually what she said. Like, it's not normal. You're in your own house and now you have to call a stranger to come into your house to help you. That's not normal. That's weird. And she said about the system having not met their needs. And my wife, she will tell you to this day, I'm cutting my grass and I stopped in the middle of like my front yard and I came inside and I have a work laptop and I just started like looking at stuff. Like I pulled up all these stats and it's getting dark. My yard still isn't half cut and I'm sitting at my kitchen table, you know, VPN into my office computer, looking at all these stats because everything she said in this podcast made sense, right? We have all these people who we think are abusing the system, but the system hasn't met their needs because we get there and we say, oh, okay, sure. We help you up. We put you in the chair and off we go. And the reality is these people have significant medical problems in a lot of in a lot of uh, situations and when you look at the literature that's out there yeah it's few and far between right like there's not a lot of awesome studies about lift assist but there are several that have looked at it and the ones that have looked at it have all basically said the same thing these people are sicker than we think and they're dying because we are not assessing them right not not taking them to the hospital because not everybody that falls or calls an ambulance needs a hospital not everybody needs an emergency department and it's perfectly okay to sign them off right like if you want to refuse and it's okay for you to refuse let them refuse that's fine if but and and if it's, had, oh sorry go we, ahead we had one of those specific examples and i, I don't want to tie this where you are uh because it was probably one that really opened my eyes like we we had this 94, 93-year-old couple in our neighborhood, never contacted us before. All of a sudden, in one shift, we get them three times. Went and picked them up. They're like, hey, so so thankful. I'm just not feeling well today. The next shift ended up picking them up twice. And the next shift picked them up twice. And so we come back after a four-day break, and they had gone every day. And finally, when we go back over there, we ask the question, have y'all just moved into the neighborhood? No, we've lived here for 70 years. Like, that's where they lived their whole life. It's like, why to, why this week? Why? We are so sorry we don't mean to disturb you. Well, come to find out their son, who had been helping take care of them, had moved away. They didn't want to inhibit him. And they hadn't eaten in four days because they were too weak to get up and eat. They were at a point where if it had continued, we would have been going for something completely different. And sometimes it takes just slowing down and stopping. Yeah. And and I think, you know, and like I said, if it's safe for you to refuse, right, because some people do just fall, right? Like some people like there there is, you know, Grandma Dolores is walking through her house and she trips over her cat and she's totally fine. And like it was a freak thing that happened. Awesome. Like if it's safe, fantastic. But 
some people have this social determinants of health problem or 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 even a medical etiology that we are sometimes as paramedics and EMTs or first responders or firemen or police, you could lump it even to the police or who to whoever that interact with them are the people that are sometimes the only people that have the opportunity to recognize that this is an issue. You know, in your example, if they hadn't called an ambulance, nobody would have noticed that, right? They've lived there for 70 years and nobody knew because they mind their own business and their son takes care of them and they do their thing and life is good. But one day when it isn't, they call somebody for help and we have to approach it with that non-biased open mind. Because when we walk in, because our shift is over at six o'clock and they call at 530 and we're already irritated because it's been a hard day. And two hours before that, we did CPR on a baby. Like all that stuff is valid. But that doesn't mean that we should approach that with any less significance. Right. So so the whole gist of my of my talk at this conference was let's number one, recognize that this is a problem and then revisit not just our, you know, head to toe ABCs, OPQRST, AVPU, any acronym you want to throw in physical exam. But let's also ask the hard questions, right? When was the last time you ate? Are you able to walk? Why, what If you don't want to go to the hospital, help me understand why that is so I can help you, right? And then being able to steward the resources that are available in whatever sitting or whatever setting you work in. Um, you know, like in like where I work, there's resources available through our ambulance service has an MIH program. Yeah, we can sometimes refer people to that. The hospitals have in the area on aging and those sorts of things like there's there's different resources available that the lay public sometimes doesn't know about that we have access to. So are are all the resources terrific? No, just like they aren't terrific anywhere. But they do exist and helping steward those resources is really important. And my goal, you know, as an EMS educator, I think, you know, and talking to you guys and talking to my colleagues, every EMS educator has a goal, right? If there's something in your career that you want to do. And when I think about what that is, my goal, and everybody laughs at me when I say this, my goal is to just be the person that makes people understand that there doesn't have to be a difference between classroom and real life, right? Like, yes, there's always going to be a logistical difference, Right. There's always going to be things that in the classroom I can't simulate no matter how hard I try, because the sky is the limit with creativity, with with some of the people we take care of. I think we can all agree on that. But when it comes to assessments and lift assists and falls. You can simulate all of that. I can simulate a lift assist. I can simulate a challenging refusal. I can make students be cognizant of evidence-based practice and mobile integrated health and really bridge them together so that the way we teach this in a classroom and the way that we talk about it around the station or wherever, however your culture dictates it, doesn't make it so it has to be disjointed. When I go to a lift assist, I should go to that lift assist with as much enthusiasm and medical critical thinking, if not more, than when I go to a cardiac arrest, right? Because a cardiac arrest, yeah, that's important. And it's important that we're good at intubating. It's important that we can do CPR. But like ACLS is easy, right? If I see this, I do this. It can be hard, right? It has challenging moments. Undoubtedly, I've had cardiac arrest patients that I really had to think through. But if I see this, I do this, right? There's an algorithm for that. There's no algorithm for the lady in your neighborhood that's weak and hasn't eaten for four days and doesn't want to go to the hospital, right? That's not in a book. That's, there's no chapter about that. So we have to, as EMS people and as EMS leaders and EMS educators, and if you're listening to this podcast, I would argue that you're an EMS leader, right? Because there are people that do EMS to make money and go home. And there are people that do EMS because they can't get away from it and they love it. And those are the people that lead, right? We're all here and we're all listening to this because in our free time, whether you're in your car, you're cutting your grass, whatever you're doing, you've chosen now to better yourself and listen to a podcast about your profession. So these are the people now that go back to their services and back to their agencies and talk about the not sexy topic, right? When we have our quarterly training, 
what or your monthly training or whatever you do, let's talk about lift assist, right? Yeah, we're gonna do CPR updates and airway updates just like we always do, but let's talk about lift assist. Let's talk about refusals. Let's make sure we understand the rules because that's where I think you can make a huge difference. So that's just me. Um, that's just my opinion. And I, you know, there's a lot of um I'm pulling up um just really quick on my my other screen here. Um, you know, and to put it into perspective for you, like so where I work, we have um I have a large ambulance service, right? I have 265 clinical providers that work where I work. And in that, in that service in 2022, we did you know 16% of our call volume was, or I'm sorry, 16% of our refusals, I apologize, were ground level falls. Here, this is, and we have a huge elderly population, right? So our numbers are probably a little bit higher than the average, right? We have a lot of nursing homes, assisted living, those kind of things. But that's huge, right? That's a huge, huge number. And I find it hard to believe that all those people just fell. You know, in the worst phone call ever, to get as a paramedic is, hey, remember that lady, right? That's how it always starts. Hey, do you remember that lady, right? And then there's like that long pause. And then it's like, well, like nothing good ever comes after well. You know, we took her to, we took her because she had a stroke or we took her because she was in a cardiac arrest or we took her, we went back to her house because she died, you know? And that that's not a good phone call. And some of the literature that's out there, um, there was a study there was a study um, by uh, Leggett et al. Uh, that came out in 2017 uh, in the PEC journal that looked at this and increased uh, morbidity and mortality in, in their lift assist and their ground level falls. And 1% of those patients in their study died within 400, or I'm sorry, within 14 days. You know, 1% is not that much, but in their study, that's 420 people. Well, if you take a look at that, though, that 1%, let's talk about what that 1% is. And you've already mentioned some of them. You know, less than 1% of the time we're doing innovations. Less than 1% of the time are we doing cardiac arrest management. Less than 1% of the time are we doing RSI management. And yet we focus so much time on that. Why are we not here? And uh, I think I think that's a, uh, I think that's important to say. Is, you know, you mentioned at the beginning we spend – this much time talking about this or this much time talking about that, but yet we're, we're not really talking about this. And, and when you take a look at it, that number is actually rather substantial. That, that number is uh, pretty staggering because it could be that many more that, that we have an impact on even beforehand. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and like I said, you know, I am by no means – the lift assist refusal, like content expert. However, you know, and and the people that I work with will tell you that my two favorite things to talk about are this and resuscitation. Like that's what I like. Um, you like the physiology of resuscitation. So it's like total polar opposites. Like if you're in the middle sick, I probably can't help you, but like, if you're on one end of the spectrum or the other, um, I'm pretty good at it. And this is, you know, this happens so much more, right? If you're a full-time paramedic, even a part-time paramedic, you can't work a shift and not encounter this, right? Like you, you can't, these people, these people are in such a need. And I'll be honest, like up until probably, I don't know, three, four, five years ago, something like that, I had never heard of community paramedicine or mobile integrated health, right? I took a class on it in my undergraduate year in college, in my senior year um, in Pitt's emergency medicine program. And I took that class because I had to fill a hole in my schedule. And I thought to myself, I like taking care of sick people. I will hate this. And it was my favorite class that I took that year. And a really good teacher, it opened my eyes to all these things, because really, like, if you think about the people that you know, that you hold in your mind as the best providers that you know, they are the people that have effectively bridged their clinical practice to reflect not only acute care medicine, but mobile integrated health and social work and all of those subtopics, and they've merged them together to encompass what EMS is, right? The future of EMS, I think that we can all agree, isn't going to be 
lights and sirens 90 miles an hour down the road, right? The future of EMS is we do that a little. And most of what we do is help these people that aren't actively dying, but still have a huge need. Well, I'm going to take this into a completely different realm. And uh, you saying you jumped on the fire truck, not wanting to be a firefighter. Uh, you know, there's some fault in your logic there. You always want to be a firefighter. Uh, <laughs> sorry, that's my background there. But um, you, you take a look at this. What you're what you're talking about now is getting into what the fire department has done, basically to try to put itself out of business. You know, in the past, you know, they fought fires. I, you know, I talked to uh, people in the past 30, 40 years ago. They're like, yeah, we were we were passing fires to go to fires, you know, all these fires that were occurring and through codes development and through codes enforcement and new building materials and education, and all of this different stuff, they don't put out fires anymore. You know, that's a almost a secondary job. They're, they're doing hazmat response, rescue calls, uh, EMS calls because they worked on this different area. Now what you're talking about getting into MIH and community paramedicine, or even some of this, knowing the, the social, uh, uh, side of things uh, as far as getting resources to people that is basically trying to say hey we're trying to get you to a point where you're not calling 911 anymore and freeing this up for those more freak uh incidents that do occur is that would that be an analogy that you would agree with yeah i think i think that that i think that that 100% you know, 100% makes sense. And, you know, and I'll, I'll jab right back at you. I can't be a fireman. I wouldn't look good in the outfit. That's just what I tell. That's what I tell everybody. I literally, in my time as a volunteer fireman, went to one fire and it was by accident. There was an, am, <laughs> there was an ambulance call and we were on the way back from the ambulance call and there was a fire. And I, I was like, what do I do? had a fire. Like, I don't know. Um, but I was, you know, I, I had a great experience as a fireman and I learned a lot and I worked in an ambulance service. Um, it, it was called Baldwin paramedic rescue in the South Hills of Pittsburgh in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. And what we did was basically, we were an ambulance service, but we had rescue capability and we did a lot of medically directed rescue. And I learned more about rescue in my time there than I ever thought I wanted to. And it was, it was fantastic. Um, I'm not very good at it. Right. I always, I always joke with the guys on my shift. If you bring me the patient, I will help you fix them. But like getting them is probably not going to be my forte, but I learned more than I thought. And you're correct because the fire service said, you know, we fight fire and we can do that really well. And then they started doing all these other things. And as things became safer on the fire side, right, with codes and everything that you said, they went to less fires, but they did this other stuff more. And now they focus a lot of their efforts onto this other stuff, but we're still really good at fighting fire, right? And as paramedics, I think that we have to switch our gears a little bit to we are really good at resuscitation and all these things when we need to be, but we spend most of our time doing this other stuff. And I think. And this is just my opinion, totally. And it you know, just doesn't reflect, you know, any of my um, my employers or anything like that. I think we market EMS incorrectly. It's just my opinion. As an industry, I think we market it incorrectly. We market EMS by jump in the ambulance. We're going to go 90 miles an hour down the road. We're going to pull 16 babies out of a car. And when we're done with that, we're going to go deliver 10 more. It'll be fantastic. The reality is. I've been an EMS for 14 years. I've delivered two babies and I've delivered two babies and I have done a lot more old people that fell down and needed help up than anything that we just mentioned. I've been to bad crashes. I've done CPR, but I, we, but like we, we don't do it. And like we, the, there's places they like post pictures of like all this stuff on their Facebook page because the picture of grandma that fell like doesn't mark it well. And, and that's, that's one of the reasons when you get into talking to people in the retention side of EMS, they get in expecting, you know, lights and sirens going 90 miles an hour, 12 times a day. And, and really it may be 12 times a month or less and 40 times to something else. And, and just to toss that up there, I, I put it up there, uh, I was supposed to deliver my first of two children. Uh, we said, don't worry about it in the second one, but I've actually delivered a sum total of zero children in my greater than 20-year career. So 
Right. And, and, but how many falls have you been to? Ton. Uh, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you, you know, and just like I said, just that one couple, we, we went to that couple seven times before we got all of their issues resolved. So that's just on that one, one couple. Well, and and even, you know, even in our heads, right. You can tell me immediately, I've had a greater than 20 year career. I've delivered zero babies. How many falls you've been to? I don't know. Right. You, You know, because it's not, it's not something memorable. You know, when you go to that career call, you remember that. But, you know, the bad crash, the MCI, the whatever, you know, whatever your flavor is. But there's a lot of times where the falls and the lift assist, and it doesn't even have to be falls and lift assist, right? It could be chest pain. It could be belly pain, whatever it is. That's a career call. And I, I took a class. I took a rescue, uh, a rescue task force instructor class one time. And the instructor was a guy who... I, I, I'm not even exactly sure what his like exact title is, but he was affiliated with Seattle SWAT, um, Seattle SWAT and the national tactical, uh, operators or officers association. And he said in this class, nobody ever calls 911 for the B team. And, and I thought about that. Like, it was one of those things that like somebody says, and you, you put, you know, you park it in the back of your head and like in the quiet of your drive home, you're thinking about it. And I thought about that, like, Nobody is having a terrible day and says, you know, I hope the mediocreist paramedic ever comes when I need help. Right. They they want the people that are astute clinicians. You know, if you needed a heart transplant, you wouldn't go say, ah, yeah, give me the guy. Give me the great value brand, you know, heart, heart transplant surgeon. You want the best one that there is. And people fly all over the world for that. When people call 911 because they fell or they have chest pain or belly pain or whatever, we should give them that experience, right? We're healthcare professionals. We are professional clinicians, and they deserve a head-to-toe clinical exam. And and one of my last slides in this, and I will just read it to you, you it's time that we move the stigma from you call, we haul, to if you call, you will receive a sophisticated clinical evaluation and a high level care or and high level care based upon evidence-based practice by 100% of the practitioners, 100% of the time. And I, I love that. I love that. Uh, there, there is so much to unpack with just that one comment right there, because let me ask you this, you, you call, you, you say you call and you want the AT or you don't want, you don't call for the BT. So when you call for fire department, what are you expecting to get? And they've done a good job of saying, okay, we're here if it's on fire. We're here if it's medical. We're here if it's car wreck. We're here if it's this. What do they do when they call for an ambulance? They expect to be taken to the people that are going to care for them. So that, I think, may be you know a place that we can educate the community to say that last slide right there it's not we're going to pick you up and take you to the hospital we're going to pick you up and take care of your needs whatever that is it's either going to be us and we're going to get you back to doing what you're doing we're going to get you there to your physician or the the doctor with some of these new like et3 and some of the different things that have come out uh through covid um and it, it may not be going to the hospital that may not be what it is but people think of I call an ambulance and they take me to the hospital not I call and they get that excellent care yeah and I think you know and I think the other side of that is we have to address the elephant in the room you know the EMS system was set up you know from a reimbursement perspective we take you to the hospital we bill your insurance Medicaid Medicare whatever it is you know we get something back from that usually it's not what we bill and what you get is what you get because a lot of times it costs you more money to track down the the difference than it would to just eat it, right? So the other side of this is the you know CMS and and all of the insurance companies and the players, you know, they have to recognize too that there's been this involvement of EMS, right? EMS is not just we come to your house, we take you to the hospital, we drop you in the emergency department, repeat. Because I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I would argue that probably 80% of the patients that I take care of don't need an emergency department, 
right? They need a PCP. They need inpatient or outpatient rehab of some kind, right? Whether that be drug rehab, physical therapy, occupational therapy, whatever. They need an urgent care. They need whatever, you know, I, I don't know what that is, social work. But most of them don't need the emergency department. And unfortunately, the default answer is as EMS people, when somebody calls 911 and we don't know what to do, we take them to the emergency department, right? When other healthcare people don't know what to do, they say, go to the emergency department. And then the emergency departments are overcrowded because they then don't have anywhere to put these people. Like the whole system, the whole system is flawed, but it's flawed from the inside, right? And I think that sometimes we have to be the people that recognize, hey, this isn't working, so we have to figure out a way to then facilitate and lobby on many different levels from a community level the whole way up to say, hey, this is what EMS has evolved to. How can you help us afford to do it? And this is, you know, so we're still in the model of the accidental death and disability white paper. You know, the, the, the uh, Mortality, morbidity, mortality associated with interstate wrecks as the interstate was being built up was substantially high. And the only people to fix that was the hospital. So we sent out at that point in time funeral homes, which kind of ties into your medical legal uh, uh, investigations. But, uh, you know, the funeral homes would come pick them up, take them to the hospital or take them to the funeral home one, one way or another. And then we've adapted, we've adjusted, increased uh, our capabilities, but the system has remained pretty much the same. The, the only goal is to get them there. When we have some very highly, and I, I love the terms that you utilize, uh, you can definitely tell that you've talked to my Dorset a, a couple of times and, and the terminology of clinicians and uh, practitioners and such, uh, that we've, we've had that shift. And uh, if you haven't yet, I, I uh, recommend reading a paper out of New York here recently, um, the uh, 2023 evidence-based agenda for the future for New York. And a lot of that stuff is there. And one of the key terms that they mentioned there is the cost of readiness, which would adjust how EMS is done. But that would allow us to say, hey, look, I've got I've got uh, paramedic Jenkins out there and he is the cream of the crop, but he's taking care of you. All you need to do is do this, follow up with your primary care physician tomorrow. If you have these specific things, call me back. But right now you're good. Yeah, and I think... Um, you know, so it's actually funny. I've never met or talked to Dr. Dorsett ever in my whole life. Um, I'm, I'm a fanboy, right? Like I, I like, I like what she does. Like I like her research. I like what the, you know, her, her stuff through the NAMSP education committee. Like, I think it's great. Um, if you hear this, like I'm a big fan, I would love to work with you, but never actually met her. And it's hilarious because Ginger Locke and Dr. Dorsett did that podcast and totally altered the way that my ambulance service where I work did this. And they have no idea. Like this just became like Jonathan went out on a limb, like on a crazy idea. And like we altered the way that we approach these calls from a podcast that I listened to while I was cutting my grass. So like it's cool how the EMS community is interconnected like that. But if you read the New York agenda for the future, you know, it talks about a lot of things. And one of the things that it talks about in that cost of readiness is a career ladder, right? So Okay, so Bradley Dean enters the EMS service as an EMT, and he's a really good EMT, and he does that for a couple of years, so he wants to go be a paramedic. So he becomes a paramedic, and then he does that for a couple of years, but he's like Jonathan, and he gets bored. So then what does he do? He becomes a critical care paramedic. So then he does that for a while, and then he teaches, and he does that for a while. But like, so then you get to that point, you're like, okay, well, what do you do? I become a supervisor of some kind, or I go fly, right? And like, that's sort of it. And there's then, you know, then you get into this whole topic of do paramedics need degrees? And I use I will tell you that I used to be the drum major of that band. Like if you're a degree, you need a pair. You need to or if you're. Yeah, if you're a degree, that makes sense. If you're a paramedic, <laughs> if, if, if you're, you're a degree, you need a paramedic. If you're a okay. degree, you need a paramedic. If you're a para, <laughs> if if you're a paramedic, you need a degree. And that's it. I used to be like that person waving that flag. And. I, when I got into grad school, so I'm almost done. And that's when I changed my tune because I'm a paramedic. I'd like to think I'm a good one. I have a bachelor's degree. I'm a program director. I'm almost done with a master's degree and it's awarded me opportunity, right? I'm sitting here talking to you guys. I've, I've written some things. I, you know, I have a podcast, like it's, it's afforded me a lot of great opportunity, 
But if you have chest pain, it doesn't matter. And because I don't, I don't have an advanced scope. I don't have any of that stuff. And I think that we have to figure out how to make EMS, you know, what's the, what's the reward, right? I've got a master's degree because I didn't want to ever be in a position where I couldn't do something that I wanted to do because I couldn't. And I have a two-year-old. So I did it when I did it because I knew that as he got older, life wasn't going to get less busy. So that's why I did it. But, and I was fortunate enough to be able to do it, but what's the, you know, what's the ROI on that for somebody who just says, I want to be a paramedic. You know, I, I think that we can cherish those people and somehow figure out a way to make it work. That's just my opinion. Well, first off, uh, I'll send a message to Dr. Dorsett and let her know that you're fan, a fanboying on her. Uh, oh, great. And we'll get that. <laughs> uh, but she was, she actually was uh, my second uh, side visit. We were talking about this before we got started, but she was my one of the side visitors for my second uh, uh, site visits and uh, learned a tremendous amount from her. There's a question she loves to ask clinician versus uh, technician. And, you know, I, I think I think what you're saying, even with that, goes back to the topic that we've been talking about is like the advancement of this profession and getting deeper into each of those patients and by by doing all of this stuff, we shift and adjust what we are are doing. Um, so I I am one. I still beat the drum of the uh, the education, and even if even if it's not even if it's not a paramedic degree, I do always uh, seek as as an individual. I'm actually working on my second master's uh, now in public health. Because it's fun and I learn a lot. I'm in biostatistics right now. And if you're not, I absolutely, I have a great professor, which makes it even better. But uh, if, you, if you've never taken biostatistics, it's fun. Um, but it's something. Uh, <laughs> it is something. But, you know, it's it's one of those things, tying back to what we're doing and what we're talking about, uh, what we've got gotten talking about now is, you know, that's kind of how we advance our future in the care of the patients and uh, open up these opportunities. So we, we've seen where we currently are and where we need to shift the papers. And, and I ha had the opportunity to talk to one of the lead individuals that uh, started the paper there uh, in New York. And uh, hearing that is like, you know, there was an issue and we got a group of people together and they're shifting that conversation and putting, putting the onus back on the state to say, Hey, we're not what you think of us. You know, I've, I've talked with some of our legislators uh, in the state. One of them goes, all you do is pick them up and take them to the hospital. Why are we having this conversation anyways? I'm like, yeah, let's talk about that. And I mentioned, I'm like, you know, our, our EMTs have these life-saving capabilities. Our advanced EMTs have invasive skills. Our paramedics have surgical level skills. If they can't get an airway through the nose or mouth, they're taking a scalpel like a surgeon and opening the airway in the throat. He's like... I had no clue you could do any of that. And so there's a lot of education that can be done there. And that's part of part of what we're talking about here is they call 911 for this, but it may not be just picking them back up. So taking a few moments to stop, find out what's going on with your patient. Is there something more medically uh, going on? Is there something traumatic that you didn't catch? Or is it just, a, a, as you mentioned, a, a social issue where we may have to get something like a Meals on Wheels or a uh, transportation program to get into the doctor's office. So um, I'm going to give you just a couple of minutes to kind of wrap us up on your thoughts about, you know, uh, I, I liked your talk. People don't normally just fall down. So wrap this all up for us tonight. Yeah. So, so I think, you know, I think if you take, you know, I think if you take one thing away from that, you know, we talked a lot of, we talked a lot about two things, really. We talked a lot about, the the way that we approach these people that fall but again it doesn't have to be falls it could be chest pain or belly pain or whatever we talked a lot about culture so i think from a from the fall side and the lift assist side approach these patients with an open mind i think that in 2023 if you go to a lift assist call or any call for that matter and on the way there you're talking about how much of a pain it's going to be. I think that then, or your partner is, I think that then you have to have the, we don't do that here conversation. 
because these patients that are calling us are calling us because they are having the worst day. And we are the people, you know, they're calling us literally because they're on the worst day of their life. They're in their home and can't get up. And they deserve somebody that's going to come in with a first rate positive attitude and an open mind that is going to assess them and evaluate them with as much sincerity as they would get in a PCP's office, in an emergency department, wherever. And we are going to do that so professionally and so medically astute, astutely, is that a word? Medically astutely that it is now. Um, it that, is now. That they get the return on their investment of calling you. And I think that that's really where we need to be. I'm a big, I'm a big reader. Um, I love to read. I don't read as much as I would like because I'm in school. And usually when I read it's school stuff, but in my free time, I like to read and I'm a, I'm a Mac addict. I love all things. If you slapped an apple on it, I'd probably buy it. And um, Steve jobs, there was a, there was a, a biography about Steve jobs that came out a couple years ago. And he said to all of his people at Apple at some point or another, be a yardstick of quality because some people aren't used to an environment where excellence is expected. And what I tell my paramedics and my paramedic students mostly because that's kind of my wheelhouse is like we talked about, they deserve this 100% of the time by 100% of the people. If you're going to be a 99 percenter, I don't want you working for me, right? I don't want you to come take care of my child. I want the person who is going to come into my house and give me that 100%. And as EMS leaders, I think that we also have to remember that it's our job to lobby and preserve the future. You know, the com I had just had a conversation on Friday, somebody talking about um, a person who came to EMS and they were going to be here for a couple of years and then they were going to medical school. That was their plan. And, you know, I think that, and this is where I'll leave it, as EMS people, for a long, long time, our culture has been, if you're not going to be here for 30 years, we're not interested. And I think that if you want to be here for 30 years, awesome, right? Like, great. We'll help you do that. We'll give you longevity. We'll give you resources. We'll give you education. We'll give you career advancement. We will give you all of that. But if you want to be here for three or four or five years until you go to medical school or nursing school or PA school or whatever your dream is, that's cool. And we'll help you and we'll support you and we'll help you facilitate that too. Because those people really aren't leaving EMS. They're just serving EMS differently. So if 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 my guy who who works for us for a couple of years and then goes to medical school or PA school or whatever goes and becomes whatever they became, then and had a really good experience in EMS, then they go on to do what they do and they become EMS advocates, right? A lot of my paramedic faculty. My paramedic program faculty are people that are EMTs or PAs now that were paramedics or EMTs that had a great experience that come back to teach. And some of them just do it for free and donate their time because they like to do it. You know, we have we have all those people. They serve EMS differently. Yeah. Are they providers in an ambulance? No. But just like any business, the EMS industry needs those background people. They need educators. They need administrators. They need medical directors. They need advocates. They need lobbyers. And call it what it is. If you're a physician and I'm a paramedic and we're talking about the same thing, everybody's going to naturally gravitate towards the physician. That's okay. Use them to your advantage. So I think that we have to, as industry leaders, foster those people too. And when we do that, we build a culture that then has longevity and success. So have a non-biased attitude, be a 100% all in all the time paramedic and foster those people because even if today's your second day it's somebody else's first day and they're watching what you do so i think it starts you know leadership starts at the top but it really starts at the bottom too right i think leadership starts everywhere and i just made that up i hope it makes sense but but it starts everywhere and we have to help the industry do that and when we help the industry do that we do these lift assists and falls and non-sexy things really well because you know ecmo is great ultrasound is great but you don't do it that much right i love ultrasound i think it's awesome but i do falls more right i still do falls more than i do ultrasound so we have to we have to change the way that we approach it so that's my that's my piece on that
So if somebody wanted to reach out and get more about uh, Mr. Jenkins's thoughts about EMS, how would they go about getting a hold of you? Yeah. So um, I have, um, and I can send this to you guys too, if you want to put it in your show notes or, or however you guys, uh, however you guys set that up, but happy to do that. I have, um, I have a couple things. I have a podcast called the clinical concepts podcast. You're always welcome to check it out. Um, I will be honest. I've been a little bit laxed in getting some content out. I had COVID at the beginning of the year and bronchitis. Like I just got behind. It was a mess. Um, but, but, I uh, have some stuff rolling out. I'm hoping, uh, hoping this month. Uh, so check that out on all the normal podcast streaming sites. Um, you could send me an email. Um, my email address is J Jenkins, J E N K I N S at mutual m u t u a l dash aid aid dot com um that's the best way to do it i'm on social media as well um instagram twitter facebook look me up happy to talk with you would love to talk with you more all right bradley dean any last thoughts from your side so one of the biggest things i would say is you know if you're responding to a a, a fall call it's more than just a fall uh, and we should always treat it that way kind of what jonathan was saying earlier all right, we are back. Bradley Dean's going to have us several awesome guests coming up, so make sure uh, to tune in. If you haven't already, if you're listening on the Gems uh, podcast uh, platform, make sure to go over and follow us on your favorite podcast platform as well. You can now find the EMS handoff. If you've been following us forever, you'll be able to repeat those episodes, but if you're just now coming to this podcast, you can go on uh, Apple and Spotify and find the EMS handoff. Uh, there as well. So make sure and take a look at that. We're uh, in the process of uh, refreshing some of our content that's out there from our website. Social media is still engaged. Bradley, make sure and take care of that. Uh, so make sure to follow us on all of our platforms as well. And uh, we'll be coming back to you soon. So until next week, continue working on your EMS handoff. <laughs>